Pastor Jeff is preaching out of the high priestly prayer of Jesus. The longest prayer of Jesus is in the Bible, which he prayed right before he went through the trials and the crucifixion. So this is Jesus speaking to Abba Father, pouring out his heart to him, starting in verse 13 of John 17. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all. I am Jeff Schultz pastors here at Faith Church, and uh, if we haven't had a chance to get to know each other, please introduce yourself uh, after worship. I'd uh, love to connect with you. Glad you're here today. Uh, I remember a period uh, a number of years ago uh, when I was really going through a time of uh, some deep discouragement uh, in my life and in my faith, and I remember Uh, I was talking with my friend John uh, about this experience, uh, trying to just sort of analyze out loud with him what was different. Why was I now suddenly experiencing all this discouragement and and just feeling like, boy, my life, my faith is just hard and and I'm just feeling down. And uh, I I was sort of talking out loud with him and and saying, you know, I wonder if it's, I realize I'm not spending as much time with God on my own as I had been before. I'm, I'm not praying as much. It's hard to pray. I haven't really been reading my Bible as much. Uh, I, I haven't been, you know, really worshiping God in, in the week, you know, between Sundays. And, uh, and, and John listened uh, carefully and uh, shared that he had also gone through times of just discouragement and, and being down in, in his life and in his faith and spiritual struggle. But he said for him, he noticed it was when he hadn't been active in serving others. He said, I really feel down, and I know I tend to get discouraged and far from God when I'm not doing something for other people on behalf of God. Now, I, I was a pretty young Christian at that point, and uh, I could not relate at all to what John was saying. Uh, part of it, I think, is that John loved Jesus, and that expressed itself in his life as a Roman Catholic. And so there was this part of me that felt like, oh man, my radar is like really set to, that's works righteousness. He's obviously trying to earn something with God, and uh, he's, he's feeling down in those moments because he's doubting whether or not he's really a Christian, because he's, he's, uh, he's doing stuff for God in order to make himself feel like God loves him. Uh, because it was obvious to me that what really grounded you, what, what kept us on track with God in our faith was spending time with God and his word and, and in prayer. And we need to hear the gospel, have it poured into our hearts and believe it and, and live it out. And that's the core of, of knowing Jesus and following him, right? You know, I, 
I never asked John what he thought about what I had shared with him, if he also was maybe puzzled a little bit by what I said. I, I wonder now, was he thinking about maybe what James wrote in his letter? What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? Now, discouragement and depression and spiritual struggle are a huge topic, uh, especially as you try and unpack their causes and, and what we do with that. And that's a, a much bigger issue than what we can get into today and not really what I want to focus on. But Jesus talks here about joy, that his joy would be fulfilled, would be complete in us. What is the source of Jesus' joy? What is it that gives him joy that he's hoping, that praying that we would experience? Jesus said, my joy, I delight to do the will of the one who sent me. I delight to bring glory to the Father. My joy is complete that my children walk in the truth, John says on behalf of Jesus in his letter. The writer of the Hebrews says that Jesus' obedience, perfect sinless obedience to the Father was sustained by the joy that was set before him. So when Jesus says in verse 13 that he wants his joy to be fulfilled in us, he's saying that he wants us to experience joy in the Father in the same way that he does. He wants us to delight in the Father. He wants us to love the Father and, and know the Father's delight in the same way that he does. And he tells us that as he has been sent out into the world and is full of the Father's joy. Now he is sending his disciples out into the world, praying that their joy, our joy, would be the same as he had. So how was Jesus sent? What was he sent to do? What, what, were, what was his motivation in being sent? What was his attitude? What was he trying to accomplish? If you follow your Bibles, if you follow uh, the calendar of the church year at all, this last Thursday was Ascension Day. That's 40 days after Easter when we read in the book of Acts that Jesus had spent these 40 days with his disciples, teaching them, pouring into them, and encouraging them. And then on the Ascension Day, he is literally bodily raised up into heaven in the sight of the disciples. And the church for centuries has recognized that as, as a special celebration. John Wesley said that Jesus ascended to heaven to assume the fullness of his reign. That God's plan for us in some way is being accomplished by Jesus ascending to the Father. Think about the whole Bible story. Adam and Eve were created in God's image and, and called and commissioned to fill the earth, to subdue it, to rule over it, and develop it for God's glory. Spoiler alert, they failed. And the world we live in now is a result of that. It's a mess. But the good news is that God's plans cannot be thwarted. God wins. Another spoiler alert, if you look at the end, Jesus wins. And in the incarnation, God sends his son 
to right what has gone wrong through Adam and Eve, to, to reverse the curse, to begin the restoration and turning things back to what God intended it to be from the beginning. So Jesus comes as the second Adam who fulfills God's plans for humanity that our first parents messed up in reflecting God's glory in and over the creation. And so Jesus, the God-man, full of the Father's glory, ascends to the Father's right hand where he rules and reigns in majesty and even now is subduing his enemies. And we're a part of that. Pastor Tim Keller says, the ascension means that a human being rules the universe according to God's purposes, exactly the way God planned it to be. And what does that have to do with us? Because we as Jesus' disciples, we are now brought into that mission that God sent his son to accomplish. So what does Jesus tell us about us and about the mission of God here in John 17? And what does that have to do with this prayer for our joy, for his joy to be in us? Well, if you haven't already, go ahead and open your Bibles to John 17. If you want to pull out one of those black Bibles in the seat underneath you uh, in front there, it's, I think, page 1073. And today we are uh, both wrapping up and kind of reviewing and summarizing this Flourish series that we've been in for several weeks, looking today at missional spirituality. What does it mean to have a faith, a spirituality in Christ that gets lived out in us? So here's what we're going to look at together in John 17, three observations about Jesus' mission and how it relates to us as he prays for us. First, we declare the Father's words. We declare the Father's words. We are shaped by God's word and speak God's word like Jesus. We are informed and formed by God's word. Look at what Jesus says in verse 14. Sorry, let me turn there since you guys are all already there. Verse 14, I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Verse 17, sanctify them, set them apart in the truth. Your word is truth. Verse 19, for their sake I consecrate, I sanctify, I set myself apart that they also may be sanctified. They may be set apart, shaped, informed, grown, belong to your word. Jesus came to speak the Father's words, not his own. Think about how Jesus talks about his own ministry in John 12. I've not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. John 7, my teaching is not my own, but his who sent me. And so as we follow along after Jesus, we recognize that we are here not to share our wisdom with the world, 
Not to point people to ourselves, to what we think is a good idea, to our understanding, but we're pointing people to the one who is wise. The one who is worthy of trust and love and obedience, who has all knowledge. And as we do that, we are being shaped by the word that Jesus has spoken to us. Disciples are people of God who know and grow in God's word so that we can share it with others. Remember how we saw earlier, Peter talks about us as followers of Jesus being resident aliens here in this world. In other words, we are citizens of one country, and yet we're living here in this one as a community of God's people shaped by our citizenship in heaven but living redemptively in all these kingdoms on earth that God has placed us in, where we are speaking out, sharing his truth with others in a way that forms us. Because remember, we saw we need to understand ourselves by God's word, and we need to understand the age that we live in. We talked about how we live in a secular age, meaning not just that it's non-sectarian, not just that it's uh, non-religious, but the whole idea of God, the whole idea of religion is now up for grabs and contestable. It's, it's not automatically assumed. And, and remember how we saw that as we seek to understand ourselves and know the way we are made, that being made in God's image has to do more with our hearts than with our minds, in a sense. That what shapes us, what animates us is not so much what we taken intellectually, but what we love and what our hearts are drawn toward. We adopt ways of life, not so much by objectively thinking through various options, but because some vision, some picture, some ideal, some desire captures our hearts. We are creatures directed by our loves, and disordered loves lead to disordered lives. When we love something other than God most, we are spiritual adulterers. Remember that picture from Jeremiah, that sin is not just breaking God's law, it's breaking his heart and tearing apart a relationship. So becoming a disciple is about training and shaping our hearts as much as anything to see that the Lord is good, to taste and see that God is the best. And as Jesus becomes our treasure, he becomes our joy and our hope. So missional spirituality, as Jesus is praying for us here, is producing disciples whose minds and hearts are shaped by God's truth more and more. And it makes me pause and ask, is that true of me? When I think about all the things that are shaping my mind, shaping my heart, shaping my desires, and what I value as good and lovely and true, where does God's truth rank in all of those things that are shaping me? Disciples of Jesus are shaped by God's word and then we declare God's word to be true in our lives and as we go out. 
And then we demonstrate the Father's love. We are ambassadors who are winsome like Jesus. Again, look back to this prayer that Jesus has for his disciples that we would have Jesus' joy fulfilled in them. Jesus prays not that the Father would take us out of the world in verse 15, but that he would keep us from evil or from the evil one. Do you see what Jesus is getting at here? He's saying, I have come that they would have, that you would have my fullness of life, that you would have the abundance of joy and wholeness that I have in myself. Look at what Jesus says in John 15. These things I have spoken to you that my joy would be in you and your joy would be full. John 10, I have come that they would have life and have it abundantly. Like, like a spring of living water, my life would well up out of them. When the religious leaders are angry at Jesus and they pick up stones to stone him, he asks them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? Jesus came to do good, to bless, to, to bring joy and life. And the world hated him. Not because there was anything in him that was offensive, but that means we should also expect to be misunderstood. Just as Jesus says, the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Now, it's understandable if the world would hate us if we're offensive and self-righteous and holier than thou and proud and hostile and argumentative, right? I mean, that makes sense. You kind of expect to be hated for that. Jesus is saying the world will hate us because we are not like that, and yet we refuse to go along with the ways of the world. We don't love what the world loves. We don't react the way the world reacts. We, we don't go along with its values and its priorities. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And as we walk with Jesus, we model his non-condemning loveliness. Jesus' prayer is not to take us out of the world, not to protect us from, you know, the, the bad people out there, but to live in the world while we're protected from the evil and, and not owned by it. We are in the world, not of it, just like Jesus was. We, we don't go along with what the world loves and treasures, but we don't try and escape from it. We don't build walls. We don't hold ourselves back from the world in kind of a self-righteous, condemning way. A couple of years ago, I ran across uh, Brant Hansen, a Christian radio host and author, and uh, this book uh, I highly recommend that he wrote called Unoffendable, uh, which I'm still trying to learn from. Uh, he's just, he's uh, very humorous, self-effacing, engaging, insightful. Listen to, to what he says. Unless you're a preacher's kid like me, all of these statements are likely true. 
Over the course of my life, I, Brant Hansen, have probably cussed less than you. I am likely far more discerning and conservative in my family's entertainment than you are. I've probably been drunk and done less drugs than you, zero times in total. Uh, I've probably done more to help the poor than you. I've probably been less promiscuous than you. I was a virgin when I got married, and I've been faithful to my wife. I probably have less debt than you, since I'm debt-free. I likely give away a higher percentage of my money than you, and I've probably baptized more people than you have. Now, here's the question, he says. How do you like me? A, I'm impressed, Brant. You're amazing. I want to hang out with someone as inspiringly clean living as you. B, maybe you mean well, but I'd kind of like to punch you in the face. Or C, there's no kind of, I want to punch you in the face. Personally, Brant writes, I chose C because I want to punch myself in the face. Perhaps I'm wrong, but I doubt people will love God more because of my list of moral accomplishments. They're more likely to be annoyed, and I don't blame them. Isn't that refreshing and convicting? We approach the world not in fear, not in hostility, not in self-righteousness, not in some need to put people in their place. We go in witness and in invitation out of confidence in our identity in Christ that allows us to respect people where they are and who they are in the hope that in loving them like Jesus would love them, we will open up doors and have an opportunity to introduce them to the Savior they need to know. So we're not threatened by the world. We don't withdraw from the world. We're not here to judge or condemn the world. We don't identify with the world, but we're faithful to Jesus as we live within it. As people following God, as exiles, we love and serve and seek the good of the people and the places around us, just like Jesus did. I ran across this quote this week, and man, did it just grab me. I don't need to look good so Jesus can look good. I need to be honest about my colossal spiritual needs so that he is all-sufficient. Am I a friend to sinners like Jesus was? Am I a safe person for non-Christians to be around? because they're not threatened by me, because I'm not trying to beat them down or prove how better I am than they are or prove how wrong they are. We demonstrate love of the Father and we go out to do the Father's will because we're ambassadors, because we are sent ones just like Jesus. Verse 16. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. John 6, I came not to do my will, but the will of the one who sent me. I don't belong to me. That's what it means to acknowledge who Jesus is, because he's Lord. We are not of this world. We are resident aliens. We are strangers, citizens of another kingdom living here representing that king and that kingdom's values and priorities and objectives. 
and we reflect it in the incarnational kind of love that we see in Jesus. Donald McLeod, uh, in A Faith to Live By, writes this, Jesus did not live a life of detachment, but involvement. He lived where he could see human sin, hear human swearing, live in the middle of human diseases, and observe human mortality and poverty and squalor. His mission was incarnational because he came alongside us, becoming one of us, and sharing our environment and our problems. How can we effectively minister in a lost world if we are not in it? How can we reach the people who don't know what they don't know? How can we reach the poor if we're not with them? How can we be salt and light in the dark places of our communities if we don't have any effective contacts or relationships in the Nazareths of our day? Jesus came alongside the people and shared in their experience at every level. He became flesh and dwelt among us. Discipleship is about more than just acquiring information. It's orienting our loves and our desires and our choices and even our lifestyles towards God's will and God's purposes because we're sent on God's mission. We're set free in Jesus, free to follow him and find life. So we use our freedom not to indulge the selfish nature, not to become slaves to others, but to serve people and love them and point them to Christ. The good life, the virtuous life, the godly life isn't just saying no to sin, it's saying yes to Jesus and his mission. And and that means we need each other to do that. Because we're part of a community that goes out to do this together. We need a community to nourish us, to encourage us, to hold us accountable, to shape us in that direction. And and that life of godliness is empowered by us constantly being renewed and reminded of the gospel. Because as we are reminded of who God is and who we are in him, it changes our motivations. It it shapes our hearts. It, It leads us to renounce ungodliness for Jesus' sake, out of love for him, out of gratitude for the grace that he's given and and out of the desire to know and love and reflect him in this world. So if we pull all this together, here's here's what it would look like. Not, Not a great graphic. Johnny gets no blame for this. Joey and I pulled this together. So we'll clean it up and we'll make it look attractive like Johnny would. This series has been about understanding the practices and the habits that would help us develop hearts that would see the beauty of God in Christ. We are informed and winsome ambassadors who live with a missional spirituality. A disciple is someone whose core relationship is union with God through Christ. And that relationship transforms our hearts so that our primary love for God gets lived out in every area of life. In short, disciples are people who live life with God for the world and the mission that God has for us in it. Life with God comes with mission for the world. We're made for life with God for his purposes in what he has created. So spirituality and mission are tied together. Think about it this way. See, if we have a spirituality, if we have sort of an inward faith that's disconnected from mission, we end up becoming 
kind of narcissists, right? We're just turned inward on ourselves. We're just gathering information and knowledge that ultimately becomes about us, our ego, and our self-fulfillment, and how can I, in a sense, use God to help make my life better for me? Or, you know, it can be turned towards sort of a, a personal holiness where the church becomes the place where I, you know, I learn how to say no to bad things so that I can look better than those people out there and I withdraw from the world and, and then, you know, conformity to the rules becomes what spirituality looks like. Well, think about mission without spirituality, without, it, without an active relationship that's being nourished through faith and, and worship. Mission degenerates into activism. And then it becomes another kind of self-idolatry, right? Where, where we're the ones building the kingdom of God. It's all about our work and our efforts and our plans and our goals. And we just need to intensify and work harder and be smarter. And we can do it all. We end up paying more attention to ourselves and what we're doing than to the God that we're supposed to be living with and on mission for. Now, look at how this comes together in a healthy way in our free church statement of faith. This is not saying that we're, we've got it all together, but this is what we're affirming a healthy missional spirituality looks like. We believe that God commands us to love him supremely and others sacrificially, to live out our faith with care for one another, compassion for the poor, and justice for the oppressed. So with God's word and the Spirit's power and prayer in Christ's name, we combat the spiritual forces of evil. In obedience to Christ's commission, we make disciples among all people, always bearing witness to the gospel in word and in deed. Amen. Amen. That is missional spirituality. A life with God for others. What does that look like? The Bekaa Valley in Lebanon is a rich, fertile uh, land and has been for centuries. It's a key agricultural center in Lebanon, and uh, it's also ground zero for one of the greatest humanitarian crises in recent history. Uh, Lebanon itself is a country about the size of Connecticut. Uh, there are four million Lebanese that live there, and also about a million and a half refugees from Syria because of their civil war. And so Lebanon is caught between hostile neighbors in Syria and Israel and still kind of recovering 20 years after the fact from its own devastating civil war and previous Syrian military occupations. That civil war in Syria is not showing really any signs of ending soon and upwards of a half a million people have been killed in the conflict and, and it's forced about five million Syrians to flee their country. Again, with a, with a million and a half of them in Lebanon, a country of four million. Those refugees stream across the borders with next to nothing, sometimes with nothing more than the clothes on their back, not even, not even a toothbrush. Sometimes in the winter, and it, and it can get cold and snow in the Bekaa Valley because it's elevated, uh, children come across the border barefoot and in pajamas and, and with nothing. They're fleeing their husbands and fathers being conscripted into military service or, or because their homes got bombed or because a family member was shot by a sniper trying to get food. And they live in tents on the edges of fields or outside a cramped industrial sector 
they find refuge sometimes in way overpriced apartments or living in half-finished concrete apartment shells that are going to be apartments someday. And frankly, most of the Lebanese are not that interested in helping the Syrians. I mean, for one thing, there's a concern that helping them is too big of a burden on the Lebanese economy. They're going to take our jobs, right? We don't want all these immigrants coming in here and, and taking our stuff. It's for us. And, and it's going to encourage them to stay, maybe, you know, when we don't even want them here in the first place. We'd rather they just not be here and, and go away back where they came from. And, and at a deeper level, almost every Lebanese person has experienced some personal trauma or the loss of a loved one at the hands of the Syrians. So they're drained on the economy. We didn't want them here in the first place. They're hated enemies. You can understand all the anger and the grief and the mistrust would lead a lot of Syrians to say they're dangerous, they're undeserving. You know, maybe this crisis is even God's judgment on them. Not my problem. Now, evangelicals are only about 1% of the population in Lebanon, but they are the ones who have been leading the way as God has been working in their hearts to do amazing things. Uh, pastor Jihad, great name for a pastor, by the way. Maybe I'm going to pick that up. Pastor Jihad, struggle, right? We're going to struggle in a good way. Pastor Jihad Haddad is the head of True Vine Church in Zaleh. It's a congregation in the Becca Valley that's reaching out to hundreds of refugee families and running a school for Syrian refugee children. They're, they're educating 270 refugee kids all across every room that they can open up in their church. In fact, they had a parking garage under their church that the church members chose to sacrifice in order to build classrooms for Syrian immigrant children. And the storage spaces down there now are also used for mattresses and heating fuel and food and other refugee supplies. And most of the teachers are Syrian refugees themselves. Could you imagine that? Like opening up your church, Syrian refugee come in and lead a class and we trust you to teach them and go at it. The church also distributes food vouchers and blankets to Syrian families. They've created community development centers in the middle of these barren tent camps with medical clinics and schools in them and free laundry facilities and playgrounds with green grass and equipment for kids to run around on who have come out of the trauma of war so they could regain some of their childhood. And they do this because they've come to believe that God might actually be working in this crisis to give them an opportunity to forgive and love and bless their enemies to model the love of Jesus and hopefully point people to the Savior who loves them. And the church places no conditions on receiving assistance. You don't have to listen to a gospel presentation to get help. And along the way, they've, they've lost members who could not go there. That's not us. Why are we spending our money on those people? That's not what the church is supposed to be about. But at the same time, that unconditional love and care has opened doors for many, many Muslim people to ask, why are you doing this? And then to be able to tell them about the love of a Savior to undeserving people like them that pushes them to share that love out towards others. And they've seen hundreds of Muslims come to faith in Christ, when for decades, one Muslim convert was a huge success story. 
God is doing something amazing as his people are living on mission as a result of worshiping him. You've probably heard us mention the Lebanese Society for Educational and Social Development, LSESD. It's the parent ministry of Arab Baptist Theological Seminary. And uh, they partner with many churches across Lebanon. Uh, Alia Aboud, uh, the director of development, was here in the last year, and, and she shared some uh, in worship. She says, we are not pushing the churches to do this. It's that churches are being transformed through what's going on as they're willing to step into this. And Aliyah and her family know that by firsthand experience because they were refugees themselves. During the civil war in Lebanon, when she was younger, they fled to Damascus, the Syrian capital, and actually lived in the capital city of their big evil neighbors. And before that, she says she remembers her father telling her and her siblings with snipers dominating the streets in Beirut, when you go out, run as if your life depends on it, because it does. Many Lebanese can identify now with what the Syrians have been through. Memory of the Lebanon war helps us remember, said Aliyah, we know what it's like to be dependent on others. See, the Christians who have been willing to step into the needs and to incarnate the love of Jesus are the ones who are not focusing on what their enemies have done and how they've been wronged and what those people deserve. They're the ones who are focusing on what God has done for me and the grace and the kindness that he has poured out into my life that sends me out into the world to love and bless others. How can we not help when we see how good God has been to us and how he loved us when we were his enemies? If the chief theme, if the heartbeat of our lives is not worshiping Jesus and enjoying him and continually being astounded by his grace to us as undeserving sinners, we have no business going out trying to invite people into an experience we ourselves have not had. Because that's the mission, isn't it? We're here because of the amazing, undeserved love and grace and kindness of the Savior. And we go out into the world not to condemn it, not to hate it, not to judge it, but to love it as Jesus has loved it. Yes, to speak the truth that people are broken and sinful and alienated and need a Savior. And praise God, he has sent one to, of all people, me. Mission is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is because we're going out to invite people to know and love and worship the Savior who has captured our hearts. And so we experience joy in Jesus as we partner with him in his mission. Disciples are people who are with God for the world, for the mission, for his work in this world. That is Jesus' joy. That is our joy. That is our life. May Jesus, the one whom God sent, be central to us so that the worship of him would be the fuel and the goal of our lives and our mission. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Thank you for Jesus. 
would you grip our hearts again with the amazing beauty and glorious good news of your son who came to save sinners, chief of all me. That, Father, as our hearts are shaped by that truth, by the love and the beauty and the goodness of Jesus, we would go out in the world, yes, to declare your words and to demonstrate your love as people who are sent by you to invite more people to know and love and worship Jesus, who is worthy. We pray in his name. Amen.